Hey, James chapter 5, verse, this is our last shot at James. We took the scenic route. And it seems fitting that he would sort of end his little book and his letter. Verse 13, hey, if, if any of you are in trouble, NIV version, well, he should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Any one of you sick, you should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous man, person, is powerful and effective. Lord, with that in mind, we pray this morning knowing that we are chosen by you. That makes us righteous, and it makes our prayers powerful. And I ask for your word today to be a light and a lamp for us as we seek your will and what it looks like to have a lifestyle of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. I busted myself this week writing, I'll pray for you on Facebook, but I wasn't. Maybe you've never done that. I don't know. You know what I mean? There's a, someone has communicated this deep, heartfelt need, and I really need your prayers, and you'll, I'll write praying, but then I wasn't. <laughs> and this week, I don't know, maybe it was specifically this week because I heard the words of Mike Coop. If you were here last week with Mike, and place of hope and what he's doing there. Do you remember what he said? That, that when we get to heaven, he feels like that we will be shocked at how much prayer mattered and disappointed at how little we did it. He said that there was one thing in common with everybody that had found healing at place of hope, and they, they number in the thousands now. One thing in common, and that was that somebody was praying for them. Every one of them. And I feel like that for us in church world that if we really believed that, that when we stop to type praying on Facebook, which is super easy to do, praying, to actually stop and pray. If we, if we believed it in our hearts, like, wow, what Mike said really mattered, like that's really true. I feel like that our prayer life isn't, it's not like we have this life that has moments of prayer in it, right? It's we have this prayer with moments of life in it. When we were, uh, when I was managing bands, um, it, one of the things that I would try to just hammer into their heads was that rehearsal is not an interruption of your work. Because <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're, especially if you're a young band, that all you saw was an MTV or whatever, or they don't do music on MTV anymore. But uh, you, you just see rock and roll concerts. You think that that's your job is doing concerts, but it's not true. That's just the gravy on top of it. Their work was rehearsal. Hours and hours of it. And all the bands, I, the, if you see a band that you just that blew your mind in the 70s and the 80s and 90s, the one thing that you know, you, and you guys know this, the Mercy Me guys, they will rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. There wasn't an interruption of their work. Whatever happened on stage, it probably drove you crazy when he was a kid just playing his guitar, playing drums, whatever. But what he was doing was his job. And in the Christian walk, I really believe that prayer... Like, it's not an interruption of our work. Like, it is our work. And I say that with an enormous amount of conviction. 
because I come from more of an entrepreneurial background. In fact, I, when we were starting this church uh, back in the day, when we, actually when we were admitting it was a church is a more accurate term, we sat down across uh, from uh, some pastors that were assessing me, and uh, there were, I remember there being bright, shining lights in a dark room. I don't, I'm not sure that's actually what happened, but that's what I remember. But one of the guys that day challenged me. His name is Ray Ortland. He's a pastor here in town, but he challenged me and said, look, you're, because you're an entrepreneur, your tendency is going to be to just try and figure it out, to just risk and try stuff and pray later. And he encouraged me to reverse that role, to pray first and react later. And, and as I look over the last few years of this church, I, I realized that there are times in this journey that I hadn't taken those words that seriously and and the Lord has convicted me of it and to say that this is for us to, was it Joyce Meyer says that you can't be pitiful all week long and try to be powerful on the weekends? No, I'm not 100% sure of the theology of it, but there's truth in that idea that Jesus was powerful in public because he was prayerful in private. And so when I'm reading what James is saying here, he says that, you know, if you're, if you're struggling, pray. If, you, if, you, if you're happy, you, you praise. If you're, you're sick, you pray. He's basically, everything is prayer and praise of a righteous person. Like that prayer and praise and righteousness, there's those three things. Prayer, praise, and then the power in righteousness. And I was, uh, I, I was, because I'm going to Israel, I'm literally just diving into the Old Testament because I'm so fired up to see all this stuff I've taught about all these years. And, and you know what I was reminded of? Because he says, hey, look at Elijah. He was that guy. He prayed and he, and he was normal and things happened, but he prayed fervently and great things happened. But at the same time as Elijah was on the earth, okay, this is, if you've ever read First and Second Chronicles, and who hasn't, right? First and Second Kings, you don't have to raise your hand if you haven't. That's how big of a geek I was as a kid, though. Like, I would literally, fifth grade, Ethan's age, I'd be up in the middle of the night with a flashlight reading Chronicles because it was just fascinating to me. But I had forgotten that at the same time that Elijah was on the earth, okay, the same time period, this is 60 years for you history buffs, 60 years after Solomon had fled the scene, he is on heaven now, Israel had been at its apex, 60 years later, they'd had a civil war in the nation. The, the, the kingdom in the north and the kingdom in the south. And in the north is where Elijah was with Ahab. And so in First Kings 17, 18, 19, 20, that's Elijah talking to a king named Ahab who was wicked, and you might know his famous wife, Jezebel. But in the south, at the same time period, was another king named Jehoshaphat. Anybody remember Jehoshaphat? So in the south is Jehoshaphat, and in the north is Ahab. And after, literally after Ahab had died, he had just died. A king had died. And what happens when, you know, is that the rest of the nations, they're starting to get interested and say, well, we, I bet we can take these guys. And so in the southern kingdom, Jehoshaphat, in his attempt to make Israel great again, is goes to prayer because what he's looking at right now is he says we got these three nations and it's in 2 Chronicles 20 if you really wanted to follow along. In 2 Chronicles 20, he is, sorry, I'm going to need these. 
I left those ones that, that fit around my neck at home, and these, this is why I have those, so I don't have to go back up here. But in 2 Chronicles 20, now look, I'm, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but in chapter 20, after these things happened, Ahab is dead, Elijah uh, is still running around, uh, Elisha's on the scene, things are happening in, in the north, but in the south, after these things happen, it's, it's bad news in what's going on in Israel. I mean, they're literally, three nations are getting ready to invade them. Like from the east, from the east of the Jordan River, they're getting ready to come in and invade. And it says after this first one, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Munites, which are actually another word for Edomites, came to make war on Jehoshaphat. And some men told him that this vast army, he got a really bad report. And the reason that this jumped out at me was that in this time when he got news of an insurmountable opportunity here, there was nothing he could do that his response was prayer. And he prays, in, uh, if, you, if you just jump down with me to verse 12, he basically starts out praying, look, God, you've, you've done all these great things. You've done this, and I don't, but we are literally, we have no options here. And here is his prayer. The secret, I think, one of the secrets to a prayer life that is effective. And he says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The prayer is what, and I won't dive deep into it because we, two weeks ago, uh, we talked about effective prayer. But praying God's will is one of the most effective prayers you could ever pray. And I would, I would say it is a 100% guaranteed answer to your prayer if your prayer is not my will, but thy will be done. If your prayer is what Jesus said in Matthew 6, teach us to pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's what Jesus himself prayed in the garden. He did not want to sign up for that rodeo. He said, I don't want to do this, but if not my will, but thy will be done. And there are those who would say that that's actually not a prayer of faith. They say that that prayer, the only prayer of faith is for me to claim what I want and then stand on it and believe and get what I want. That's the prayer of faith. I would suggest to you that the Greeks had it right that when they said that when the gods want to punish someone, they answer all of his prayers. <laughs> that, that the great poet, Garth Brooks, was right when he said that sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. 10 million people agreed with that. <laughs> that my prayer, there are things 10 years ago in my life that I fervently wanted, desperately prayed for, and am now 10 years later infinitely grateful that God didn't give me that. Praying God's will is a key to a life of prayer that allows us to say, Lord, I want this. He says, you have not, but you ask not. That's James chapter four, verse three. But you have not because you ask amiss. You ask that you can spend it on your own. Your own and you hear lusts and you immediately think naughty. But lusts in that word is just your own desires. It's saying, look, that is the prayer of my will be done, my kingdom come. The, the prayer of faith is, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. 
And it, the reason I say it's faith is that because it 100% requires that I trust that he has my best interests in mind. And I believe that we can trust him very simply. If you don't know, can I trust him? Romans 8, 28, we know that passage, many of us, by heart. In all things, Christ is working together for the good of those who love him and are, who called according to his purpose. But he goes on to say, in verse 30, 31, that, that he gave up his own life for you. And he who would do such a thing like that, would he not freely give you all good things? We call it cross-examining it around here. I don't know this, but I'm going to take it to the cross. I'm going to examine the cross. And because of the cross, I know that I can trust that whatever that answer to that prayer is, if it's yes or no or later, that he has my best interests in mind and that all things are working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose because he gave his life for us. Would he not give us freely all good things? Praying God's will. And then he goes on, and Jehoshaphat, what does he do? I don't know if you remember this story. But instead of, because look, this is a hopeless situation. Three armies are gathering to beat down an already beat down army in Judah. And what does he do? He goes and he prays, and he prays God's will. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then they begin to praise he sends, if you're in the band, this is about, this is not a fair thing, but hey, push the musicians out first and we'll hide behind, you know, the snare drum. He sends the praisers into battle first. He's basically saying, look, because God says, look, the battle isn't yours, a truth that we could all learn to remember. And so when he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, in James 5, he says, praising him. In 1 Thessalonians 5.13, he says that in everything we should, we should give thanks for this is the will of God, that we get to praise him. That's the, the idea of a sacrifice of praise was that I don't really feel like it right now. Because in our world, you know, what is it? that you know, Reasons explain, excuses blame, but praises frame. Now that should be, I should have gone to a Baptist school. Let's do that again. <laughs> excuses, blame, right? If I'm making excuses, I'm just blaming someone else. Reasons, I've, I'm really good at the reasons. So I can explain. I can literally, you know, self-examine my own crisis. But what praising does is it frames the situation in a whole new world. It sets the parameters. That's what a frame does, right? Of saying like, this, I don't, this, this picture is huge, but it is completely framed by the God of all the universe. And that is, if you read in Second Chronicles, that's what he's saying here in his prayer. God, you've done this. You created the heavens and the earth. You delivered us here. He is reminding himself of who God is and who his enemy isn't. And so what he does is send these musicians into battle first, praising the king. They bow down and they worshiped him. They struck up the band. And these three armies, if you remember the story, as they leave Jerusalem, they're marching out to the desert of Tekoa, and as they're going, off in the distance, these three armies, and if you think about it today, by the way, it kind of makes sense how God could do this, because the mess that is the Middle East right now, you've got literally enemies fighting beside each other in this area, fighting against each other in this area, and over here, not sure who to fight. When you've got three enemy armies standing side by side, they, none of them trust each other. 
And so the Lord got into the middle of that situation and thwarted their plans. And by the time Israel showed up, the three enemy invading armies had all killed each other, everyone. No one escaped, it said. Because God was the one fighting this battle. And in our world right now, there are battles that you are facing. And what God needs you to remember is your enemy is Satan. In your marriage, your spouse is not your enemy. In your family, your children are not your enemy, although sometimes. The real enemy is Satan. And so for us to get distracted, because if, if I'm, I don't know if I'm Jehoshaphat, I probably had a really good battle plan. I could have whiteboarded out for God. Tell you what, God, why don't you take the Assyrians and the Egyptians, you bring them up, they could clean them out, and then we could flank them from behind. And we, but he didn't. He just said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He prayed in the face of an insurmountable opportunity, and then he praised in spite of before the, there was anything that happened. But the third thing that he did, he prayed, he praised, and then I, I love this, he he paraded. I mean, he literally sent the parade out with a marching band. And it says, uh, let's say verse 20, early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah, and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord and you will be upheld. Have faith in the prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, verse 21, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and praise him, listen to this line, for the splendor of his holiness there is power the prayer of a righteous man the prayer of a righteous woman who is praying God's will who is praising in spite of the answers there is power in the prayer of someone who is holy of his holiness I think it's Psalm 97 12 where he says thank, we thank you for your holiness Thank him for his holiness. I haven't thanked him much for his holiness. And it might be because I misunderstand what holiness is. Um, real quick, anybody grew up in the Pentecostal holiness church? Was it, the, was it the one where there were no windows? So you know what I'm talking about? There are, there are what we would call Pentecostal holiness. There's no windows. Literally, this was before they could give you that, those shots to tighten your skin, so they would just pull their hair back. Uh, to, 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 you know what I mean? Like, literally looked like they were, drove up in a cat like, with the windows down. Just. But, but holiness in that environment, and maybe in your environment, was based on, on morality, on, on rules and regulations and policies and procedures. That holiness was... Just about that. I, 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 uh, it's, the Amish would say this right now. We don't wear uh, zippers on our pants because of some policy and procedure. We don't have televisions because of... And these are things that what they've said was that the, the Lord has told us to be holy. We have to literally abandon everything in the world and to live these uh, crusty, boring, non-eventful lives. King James only 1611. Is that when it was, the, the King James one? Um, but, and, and I don't mean to, uh, to belittle those things as much as I mean to say you're kind of missing the point of those things. Because holiness 
if it's simply about morality, you can be moral without God. There are lots of good reasons to be moral. If you've, if you've been in the business world, it's good business, to be honest. You can be pragmatic. Honesty is the best policy. It's, it's, it's smart to be, to be moral. It's smart. But if it's simply about morality, then I can literally live a long and moral life and still not have God anywhere near it. Isaiah 35, there's this great picture. When it's, it's, a, it's a prophecy for Israel specifically, but a promise for us spiritually. And he speaks of this idea of what, uh, what's going to happen. That you know, that you, uh, Verse 4, if you're fearful hearted, be strong, don't fear. It's this promise that we, that we could hold on to and that we bolster. But he goes on to say in verse 8 that a highway shall be there. Speaking of the new covenant with us, that this, a highway will be there and not the ACDC one. Second service with all the teenagers, I'll have to maybe be more clear, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> he says, there's a highway there. It's a, it shall be called the highway of holiness. Isaiah 35, 8. My point is what, I, what I'm trying to, to circle the airport and land on is this idea that holiness isn't a destination. It's a path that we go on. And the moment that you have believed in him, that you have been sanctified by him, that you are already made righteous, that you're forgiven, and your behavior matters because there's consequences to people that you love, there's consequences that you can't even understand, but in his presence, you are righteous, you are holy, and you are accepted And it says on that righteousness, that holy highway, that there will be no lions there. I think it's verse 9. To be holy, in the Old Testament terms, what does 1 Peter 1 tell us? Be holy because I am holy. He's quoting from Leviticus, and I was reading back in Leviticus and realizing that what he was quoting from in Leviticus 11 were things, not people. It was a holy table, a holy utensil, a holy pot. And so if righteousness was simply about morality, if holiness was simply about morality, I believe it includes morality, but I don't think it's exclusively morality. Because what does an immoral table look like? (laughs) just a table because a table is neither moral or immoral you are holy because God has what the Old Testament word of holy means is set apart you were chosen and you were set on this highway and holiness simply means set apart, chosen And on this holiness highway that we're now on, we'll get into the ditch. I get into the ditch easily. I get into the ditch of too much righteousness. It's all about my behavior. And I've crashed into that ditch. You have too. And then, and maybe you haven't done this, but I've rode this rodeo before. I've driven into the other ditch of where none of my behavior matters because I'm righteous and I'm forgiven. If I've already done it in my heart, I might as well get my money's worth. It's terrible theology. 
I can speak with confidence on that. <laughs> Not a good idea. My, my point is, is this, that for a powerful prayer life, and for us to, we're praying God's will, we're praising in spite of what's happening, we're praising him, but there is a power that we have, I don't know that we've fully tapped into because of a recognizing that we are on a highway of holiness, of his holiness, chosen and set apart by him. And if it were simply about morality again, then I could do it without him. But with him, I have this relationship that goes so much deeper than the rules and the regulations. I have a a relationship with him because his command, his demand of love on me is so great. Do you remember the story, I think it's 2 Samuel 23-ish, where David had been, they were surrounded and he was out in the desert and he was thirsty and he, he literally just sighed almost. You could almost hear him, I'm so thirsty. I really wish I could have a water from this pool back home. And two of his men that night, maybe three, heard, just heard him sigh that. And what did they do? Remember, they went in, they fought their way into Bethlehem. They got the water. They came all the way back. They risked their lives and they handed them this pot of water. And David, what did he say? He was like, I can't, this is too great of a sacrifice for me. I don't even deserve this. And he wouldn't even drink the water. But they did it not because he commanded them to, but because they loved him. That if the demands of love on you and I are, are that great from our Savior, even a sigh at the dinner table is something we would want to obey. The reminder that he didn't tell us not to do certain things in our life. He didn't define marriage in a certain way to try to make us bummed. He did it because he knew that's what was best for us. That those things that he said, he's, he's like, he's the designer, so he gets to define like how we live because he knows what's best for us. And so holiness, I think, will draw us to, and on the path of holiness, we'll move closer to, every day I'm a little less mature and a little more mature. Every day I'm a little less selfish and a little more selfless because I'm on this path of holiness where I'm already on the road, so I am seen as righteous in the eyes of my Father. But the older we get, the wiser we get. There are things that I used to think were perfectly fine that I don't do anymore, not because it's some great burden on me, because I just don't want to anymore. And yet there are things that I do want to do that I shouldn't want to do. Does anybody remember Romans, right? Six, seven, eight. Uh, I'm, I'm still Paul in some of those areas. And so I'll go to the ditch one way or the other, but literally it's like, I'm headed, whatever ditch, I'm, I'm still on this highway of holiness. And for us and for our lives, for, I mean, for the sake of our kids, for the sake of our grandkids, it's a great privilege to live lives of prayer for them, for, by, by name and in our cars, however the Lord leads you to do it. But remembering that I get to pray his will for my life and his will may not be my will. But because he loves me, because he died for me, I can cross-examine it and I know it's going to be okay that his will will be done. And because of that, I can. And there are days I don't want to, there are days you don't, and there are days I don't. 
but I can praise him anyway because he's good. And I can do so on a highway of holiness that I can thank him for his holiness, that I can praise the, the beauty of his holiness. I, I don't think of holiness, I didn't, before, I didn't think of holiness as beautiful, but it's beautiful because it's how he designed the world and the universe to work and it's beautiful. And I can praise him for that and thank him for taking me, for taking Justin and saying, I've chosen him and I am setting you apart. Did they do this to you when you were kids? Did they line you guys up in the gym wall and pick teams? This form of public humiliation. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many, you know, I was, the, I was almost always the last chosen. It usually would come down to me and Lori Pearson, actually. And it would usually say, well, we'll take Tyler, at least he's funny. You know. So uh, sometimes I wasn't last, sometimes I was second to last. It's not that kind of chosen. <laughs> well, I'll take Tyler, at least he's funny. It's this, he looked literally through the universe, through the millennia, before you were born, and he saw you in your mother's womb, before you were there, and he chose you, he set you apart. You wanted you, that on the cross he thought of you specifically. I don't know how that works, but he did. You were like the cool kid in school that got chose first. <laughs> he said when he was leaving, he said, I, I no longer can be here, I'm going to go, and it's better for you. And the disciples were like, whoa, 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 back up. How is that possibly better? that you go, and he says, I'm going to send someone else. I'm going to send another comforter, another counselor. And you know why it was better? When he was on earth, you had to get in line. You had to take a number. You had to step aside. You had to press through the crowd. You had to somehow get there. You had to cut a hole in the dadgum roof. You had to figure out a way to get to him. You now are first in line every time. There is no take a number and step aside because you're first in line, because you're holy, because you're chosen, because you're appointed because you're loved. And stepping into prayer with that understanding, it's, it changes our prayer lives. When I remember I'm not outside pounding, begging, knocking, that I'm literally like the child inside in bed with the father in the parable, there are promises throughout Scripture that holiness isn't something to be avoided. It isn't a burden to be carried. It is a beauty to be worshipped. It is a gift to be thankful for. And in our lives this week, it's the holidays. Some of you are going to be lonely. Some of you... You know, the holiday season, you know, it's, it's, it's fun for a lot, but for others, you've got to sit down across the table for someone you uh, would rather not. But praying God's will for them by name, praising God's wisdom for them, and then just like Jehoshaphat, parading his holiness, parading the, the goodness of God in your prayer life, I believe it'll make a difference for us. If there's one thing James promised us, right, it was that prayer 
mattered. And if there's one thing that we can't forget is that prayer mattered. And if there's one thing that I think that the enemy would want us to avoid is to pray. They say that one of the best ways to have nobody show up to an event is to call it a prayer event. I would add on to that. Say it's for the persecuted church and then like, you're, it'll clean out the place. Because in our society, like, prayer doesn't sound like much fun. What a lie, what a crapping lie from the enemy for us, right? It's the exact opposite of what it is. It's this powerful thing that the enemy would, of course, want you to not do because you don't think it matters. This week, this year, I dare you to embark on a prayer life of praying God's will, praising him and parading his holiness. Would you stand and and let's pray? If we just say that holiness is about morality and modification, we are oversimplifying it. Holiness includes morals. It does include it. It includes sanctification, but that's not the full definition of it. It's about purpose and position. You have been chosen and positioned in this place and now you have this purpose which is to bring glory to God and as we travel on that highway of holiness, let's stand on that road today and pray to our Father. Would you give us wisdom, Lord, as we leave into uh, the world that you've got around us, into the families and into the situations and our situation seems impossible. It seems exactly like uh, the situation like Jehoshaphat faced. There is no way to get out of this. And as a, as a church corporately together, today we say, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We're praising you for your goodness and your glory and thanking you and parading on your highway of holiness as set apart, accepted, loved, forgiven men and women. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.